0: Hey, everybody, this is Alex and Ben. Welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge.
1: We have essentially two companies, Democrats and Republicans, and 90% of customers, voters, are dissatisfied. And yet in the politics industry, we never see any new competitors. It is the system. Washington DC isn't broken. It's doing exactly what it's designed to do. And unless we change the design, we'll just have new faces incented to do the same kinds of dysfunctional things that we see now.
0: Hey, everybody, we're really excited to bring you Catherine Gell today, uh, who is one of our national guests, but maybe a familiar name that you know in Oregon, not come 2022, but come 2024, which we'll get more into in the episode. But Catherine is the founder of the Institute for Political Innovation, a nonpartisan nonprofit group that she founded in 2020 to push for something which is called Final Five Voting. She's also a business leader and is the former president and CEO of Gell Foods, which is a $250 million high tech food manufacturing company that she sold in 2015. She also serves on the boards of a bunch of national political groups, including Unite America, New America, Business for America, and is also an active philanthropist, and I believe
2: also in the Obama administration. Ben, what did you think of the episode? Great episode. Really enjoyed talking to Catherine. She's clearly a very intelligent, thoughtful and strategic thinker. And she's creating something with this organization that is starting to change the way that our system of politics works across the country. And I was interested to see her basically signal to folks listening to this podcast and others in Oregon, you know, if you're interested in taking on this proposal of hers, which we get into in the episode, there's potential for 2024, a ballot measure that would fundamentally change the way that we elect politicians in the state of Oregon And I thought it was fascinating. I think the one thing that sticks out for me, many of our listeners will remember the open primaries ballot measure from several years ago that was just soundly defeated in Oregon. And it's important for listeners to know that this proposal is not open primaries. In fact, Catherine in the episode discusses why she herself opposes open primaries. That being said, Will the political parties, which like in the open primaries election, both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party opposed the measure. So it'll be interesting to see, will this proposal create the same sort of dividing lines in our politics with the same actors on the pro and con side? Or will Catherine's conception, uh, multi-tiered, right, it's a primary and general proposal, will that kind of shake things up and create new dynamics in the state? So fascinating conversation, and I think one that folks will be listening to come 2024, and potentially 2022, we'll see folks join Alaska in adopting this, this Final Five reform. What did you think, Alex?
0: Yeah, I thought it was a a really interesting episode, and I also thought that she responded very well to both your and my critiques, which is, I would say, I don't know if we get that necessarily out of every episode. I will say, Ben, too, this podcast has given people a lot of things. It's a sense of community, a place that they can hear us yell at each other. (laughs) We may even give someone a job after this because this ballot measure may come to Oregon come 2022 or 2024. Yeah, really interesting episode. I think Catherine is probably one of the best at this for those business folks who are involved in politics. And I kind of get into that criticism of the donor-funded projects a little bit more in the episode, but overall really enjoyed uh, speaking with her and definitely
2: someone that y'all should know and y'all should be listening to and paying attention to. Absolutely. We'll also put in the show notes a link to Catherine's TED Talk, which is kind of what sprung her into the national spotlight. She co-authored a piece in the Harvard Business Journal as well that kind of put her in the center of national political dialogue. So thank you everybody again for listening. I hope that at this point you're subscribed on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Audible or wherever you get your podcasts. But if your podcast platform does have a rating, please give us five stars and leave us a review so other folks can find the podcast and help us grow. Otherwise, thanks again for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode. All right, everybody, we've got Catherine Gale here with us. Catherine, how are you doing today? I'm
1: great. Hi, Ben. Hi, Alex. How are you guys?
2: We are doing really well. And we wanted yeah, to thanks start- thanks for being here. We wanted to start with anyone who reads your bio. It's kind of a, it's a fascinating trajectory you've had in your career. So you, and the, the part that I want to ask about is how does someone running a multi-million dollar high-tech food processing company decide to give all of that up and start your own basically like a political think tank nonprofit that's trying to solve small D democratic problems. How do you go from A to B? And do you regret it?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you know, I've so often been asked how I went from A to B, but I don't think someone's ask me if I regret it yet. So, just jokingly, just joking. Yeah. I will say actually <laughs> I don't, although I do miss business. It turns out mm-hmm. you have a lot, you, you think you don't control things when you're running a business, but you actually control a lot more when you're running a business than when you're trying to do what I'm doing now. That's something I've learned. But I will say uh, to that question, it's actually a more direct line from running this high-tech food manufacturing company with 400 employees. You know, to doing what I'm doing now than one would think. So here's a short version. So there I was a business leader, but I cared deeply about the country and I was engaged in politics, et cetera, in kind of traditional ways, you know, candidates and policy. And and I was getting frustrated with the entire thing that Washington DC wasn't getting anything done. And two things happened. One, I was doing my corporate strategy. So essentially I'm saying, how can I sell more cheese, right? That's the core of it, make my business bigger. And as I was working on that strategy, at the same time I was running a parallel analysis of the industry of politics, just like I was working on the industry of cheese sauce and the other things I sell. And one of the key insights that I came up with is, hey, how come in my business the way that I do well is by making my customers happy, which is they have to like my cheese sauce and it has to be the right price for them essentially. And if I don't do that well and I'm making a lot of money, then someone else, but my my customers aren't happy, someone else is gonna come in this industry and take this business away from me. And it is that pressure of competition that makes me keep innovating to serve my customers, et cetera. So how come in politics, we have essentially two companies, two players, Democrats and Republicans, and 90% of customers, voters are dissatisfied. That's the disapproval rating of Congress. And yet in the politics industry, we never see any new competitors. Nobody comes in and says, oh, since everybody is unhappy with what, you know, sort of both parties are delivering, even if they believe what the parties say, they may be unhappy with how it's all playing out. uh, They never have any new choices. And I thought that is so odd and anti-competitive. And the second thing that happened is I read a book by a former Republican congressman, Mickey Edwards, called The Parties Versus the People, where he said that it is the system, that's the problem. It's not the players, it's the system they're playing in. And so I put those two pieces together and I could never unsee what I had seen, which is, as Mickey originally said, Washington DC isn't broken, it's doing exactly what it's designed to do. So the problem is inherent to the design And unless we change the design, we'll just have new faces ongoingly incented to do the same kinds of dysfunctional things that we see now. And after I saw that, I just couldn't prioritize the company that I love so much anymore because of country and this whole issue was more important.
2: That's an amazing story. And you, you touched on a few, I want to define some terms at the very beginning here. So first. You talk a lot about the political industrial complex, or you sometimes say the business of politics. Can you define what that means to you and how that's part of this thesis?
1: Yes. So there are a lot of ways to look at what's going on in politics. The way that I talk about is not the only right way to think about politics, but I think it's really helpful, which is... Let's think about politics as an industry, which is to say a whole group of people and companies who get their jobs and make their money and grow their businesses and grow their employment by succeeding in this business, which is politics. And we have to ask ourselves what it takes to succeed in that business. And so I talk about the politics industry and the political industrial complex as being those set of people who are engaged in that for their livelihoods. And in any well-functioning industry, people in that industry, well, in any industry, whether it's well-functioning or not, people are gonna do what it takes to succeed in that industry. So the question becomes, what does it take for people to succeed to keep their jobs, to get their jobs, to grow their jobs, to grow their compensation and power, et cetera, in the political industrial complex. And whatever those behaviors are, are the behaviors we're gonna see because we, Alex, Ben, me, right? We have all done in our careers, what we need to do to succeed in the jobs we have or if we don't like what we have to do, then we go get a new job. But in general, basically we wanna you know, succeed in the job we have. So we do what the rules and sent us to do.
2: And so that dynamic, I've heard you talk about this on other podcasts. Basically the dynamic is the incentive for the political industrial complex is actually not to solve problems. Because as long as there's problems that are unsolved they can go back to their base and say, Hey, I need more money. Hey, I need you to send me back to Congress. We've got more work to do. Um, Whereas if you go and you solve problems efficiently your pitch to your donor class is different, or maybe they're less interested in investing. And is that, when uh, the other defining of terms I wanted to ask about was the rigged system, which sometimes Bernie Sanders and the left of the Demo- Democratic Party uses this term rigged system. But I think you mean something slightly different when you're talking about the rigged system. So how do you define the system as rigged?
1: I actually don't use the word "rigged" so much as I say Congress fixed. isn't broken; it's fixed.
2: Fixed, yes, that's right. And
1: what? And, but and what I mean by that then is not getting at this picture of corruption, like as if people are getting paid off, but getting at the idea that the system is fixed by the rules of the game of the system to give us what we're getting. So there's o- there's very little freedom for elected officials in our current system because their their latitude of action, their ability to actually legislate, to make choices, to lead is very narrowly constrained by what they have to do to win party primaries on both sides. And the things that win party primaries on the left and win party primaries on the right are a very narrow set of actions, policies, preferences, talking points, and that's what we get. And particularly, people on both sides to win their primaries have to do one thing in general, which is definitely don't compromise with the other side. Don't work together. Don't find a consensus. And so when a system is so strong in that way, which is in order to keep your job, don't work with the other side, that is the behavior we're going to get. So what we have right now, I say, is a system where if people in Congress do their jobs the way we want and need them to, they're actually likely to lose those jobs. So that's a Totally crazy system. Because imagine if any of us worked in a company where essentially it was do your job really well and then we'll fire you. Then we would probably not do our jobs really well. We would do our jobs badly to keep our jobs. And that's what we see happening really in Congress.
0: Great. Thanks for that. And Catherine, I, know we, I at least I want to circle back on a number of those you just made. But before we dive into that, I want to take a step back and talk a little bit more about you and then IPI as an organization. So having worked in D.C. for five years, I know that there's a lot of different groups, I would say, are either donor driven or donor found. And I would argue that you've actually been one of the only successful people in finding one of these groups. And I particularly appreciated your comment on a previous podcast of saying, like, I'm not trying to empower the squishy middle because I feel like when a lot of business people put forward like ideas in the political space, it's all about how can we get back to working together and bipartisanship and and all of this sort of thing. Yeah, Yeah, the moderates, moderates. we need more moderates. You know, there's a, a million donor funded groups in DC that are pushing this sort of lingo to I think very little success. So and obviously, I think you've actually had some success so far. And we'll talk about it a little bit later. But with the Alaska ballot measure, and then in some other states as well. And I think that people are clearly becoming more interested in this idea and you're seeing a lot of momentum across the country, uh, which I imagine is, is really exciting for you. But could we just dive a little bit into why do you think this has been more successful, at least in my opinion, than some of the other sort of donor-driven or business leader groups out there? Like, what is it specifically about your vision kind of as a thought leader that you think is like actually appealing to real voters and like real policymakers kind of in these states and across the country?
1: You know, again, I, I think it is my career as a business leader that I've been able to take the things I learned there into this realm. First, to figure out the theory that I was talking about a moment ago that we have an anti-competitive industry and it's a duopoly and it's doing what it's designed to do with the rules. But the second piece is to bring into this world of political reform which I don't like to think I'm in. I talk about being in political innovation a particular idea from business, which is strategy is about choosing what not to do. So uh, we don't try to do everything. We don't try to fix everything. And therefore we work in one particular area, which is to say the only things we spend our time on at the Institute for Political Innovation are the things that are at the intersection of, are at the sweet spot of being both Powerful and achievable. Here's what I mean by that. I don't want to recommend to any one of your listeners or to anyone that we should change something unless it is powerful, by which I mean, if we change this part of the system, it is likely that Congress will work better and deliver better results for the American people if we change this thing. And the second thing is, that whatever I'm recommending has to be achievable. It can't just be a pipe dream as if, yeah, wouldn't it be great if that were different because then everybody would get along. I mean, (laughs) I don't wanna sell that. we have to, we have to sell a real solution here. We, I'm all about action. So what, is at the sweet spot of being both powerful and achievable. And the answer to that, and I know we'll get to it, is what I'm really focused on, which is changing the rules of our elections to something called final five voting. And so the reason we've had success is because people over time buy what works. So you can only get so far by selling a pipe dream or and even and by selling an aspiration if it's yeah. not actually grounded in reality and that's one of the problems in politics is that we somehow think that politics is different than every other rational endeavor and that people in politics are guided by different incentives that it's somehow supposed to be better than we know it's not but we think it's supposed to be like this moral high calling and that you know, we do things for the right reasons, et cetera. But when we just get square with the fact that people are incented the way they're incented across every human endeavor, then we can really focus in on what it would take to change those incentives. And we have a real solution. There are a lot of reforms groups that for example, are proposing to change certain things that require a constitutional amendment. Well, you know what? I want the thing I'm working on to be successful before I die, okay? <laughs> I'd to be successful in the next five years, but the constitutional amendments are not doable in our current system. I'm not saying nobody should work on them. Some people need to have a very long lens and there are very valuable efforts that could be successful in the long term but the solution for us is not something that has no chance in the next decade. So the reason we're having success is because what we're offering is final five voting, which is both powerful and achievable.
0: To me, it's so key that especially you're like, look, we're not going to do everything, and I don't want to do everything. We have this very specific goal in mind for what we we'll want to be able to reach, and I think that that's it's such an excellent point because so few political policy think tanks sort of have that mindset of it's like, as you said, very open, expanded. Like, here's our vision for society, and it's like, you know, yeah, I like to see that stuff achieved before I'm alive, not in twenty, you know, twenty twenty two or whatever. But no, that, that's that, that's really interesting. That was a very thoughtful answer. And so, yeah, let's transition into Final Five, as you were you know, just alluding to. What is Final Five? How can I learn more about Final Five? Kind of who, who created Final Five? Was this your brainchild? Give us the ins and outs.
1: Let me start again to repeat this premise that the behavior that we see on the part of our senators and representatives, many very, very talented and passionate people are serving And what they're doing is what they're incented to do. The key incentive, there are lots of different incentives, but a major, the biggest incentive is getting elected and getting reelected. So let's think only about that incentive. And as I noted a moment ago, right now, acting in the public interest, the broad public interest is actually makes someone less likely to get reelected because acting in the broad public interest, the interest of the general electorate can easily on both sides make you lose your primary. Final five voting. And and then the second piece is that there's no new competition ever in the system, right? We just have Democrats and Republicans regardless of how dissatisfied people are. So what we want to do is alter those two dysfunctional aspects. So final five voting is the combination of two simple changes to how people get elected to Congress. First, let's get rid of party primaries because they push people so far to the left and so far to the right that they can't work together. So instead, in their final five voting, we will have a single primary, one ballot, everybody who's running is on the same ballot, regardless of party, Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, Greens, Independents. When you go in to vote, you look at that list of people and everybody can vote, not just people who are registered with the party, everybody votes and you pick your favorite. Just one. Just one, you pick one favorite, the polls close and then we count the votes and the top five finishers out of that single primary are going to advance to the general election so we're not going to have just one republican and one democrat if you do this in a super republican district for example we could easily have three republicans or four republicans advancing and one libertarian or you know three republicans two democrats and a, and a green that makes six sorry two two and one so, yeah okay you get it it's supposed to add up to five so people are good at math you need to do that okay so so the point is then out of that primary we have five advancing Now, between the primary and the general, we will benefit from this dynamic, diverse competition of ideas and candidacies and visions and debate between these five. Then we need to make a second change because we have to figure out who's going to win. And you would think that would be simple, but it's not as simple as it seems, because what we wouldn't want to do is now that we have the benefits of five people and that competition, we don't want someone to, in a sense, accidentally win with 21 percent of the vote. Which could happen if the vote splits relatively equally five ways, right? One candidate could be the winner, but they'd only have 21% of the vote. So what? We yeah, do that, now? that
0: might actually happen in our gubernatorial primary for the Democrats. Is it's if if all of the big candidates do declare, it could highly be likely that someone wins with 30% of the vote.
2: Well, or so. or California's next governor, if there's a recall, could be someone who right now is polling at like 25, 27% of the vote. Like it's a it's a very real problem in our democracy.
1: It's a real problem. And that's because what we do in our democracy, and I'll get back to final five voting in a moment, is we use something called plurality voting, where we say, whoever gets the most votes wins. And I'll just give you an interesting historical tidbit. That seems really rational, whoever gets the most votes wins and we're used to it, but it's actually almost an accident. When the country was founded, You know, they wrote this great constitution that needed to be improved and was improved over time, but we have this constitution And it doesn't say in the constitution actually how we should pick the winners, but they had to figure those rules out too. And at the time there really weren't other examples of democracies. And so our founders essentially copied countryside elections in Britain which was one of the few examples of people choosing representatives. And they said, whoever has the most votes wins. So now, as long as you have the most votes, you win, even if you don't have a true majority, which is how you get people winning in California with 25% of the vote, or maybe someone in your gubernatorial primary with 30% of the vote. We don't wanna have that problem. So now go back to final five voting. We have our five candidates who came out of the primary. And what we do in the general is now when we come to the general, we're going to rank our choices. This is something that I call instant runoff voting. Others have heard of it as ranked choice voting. You go in the ballot, you go into catch your ballot and you see all five candidates and you do what we do naturally, which is list them in order of your favorites, as in, oh, I really want Alex to be my Senator. But if, okay, if I can't have Alex, then I'll take Ben. Mark. And if I can't have Ben, you know, I'll take Amy. And if I can't have Amy, God forbid, you know, I'll take this person. And then the last person is someone like over my dead body. Do I want this person to be my senator? You can rank as many or as few as you want. Then when the polls close, we count all the first choice votes. And if one of the five candidates has a true majority over 50%, great. Elections over, they won. But if nobody of the five has over 50%, then we begin a series of runoffs. The candidate who came in last place, who came in fifth place, is eliminated. And if you had selected that candidate who's now out of the race as your first choice, your single vote is now automatically transferred to your next choice who's still in the race, the remaining four candidates. Then we run the totals again, look for a majority winner and you keep eliminating the candidate in last place and voters have their single vote transferred to their next choice. And in that way, we end up knowing which of those five has the greatest amount of support from the greatest number of voters in that district. This means, so so as a result, final five voting, which is top five primaries plus instant runoff general elections, determines a winner, but it does something far more important than determining a winner. It sends those winners to Washington, DC with the freedom to lead on behalf of their general electorate and the incentive to lead on behalf of that general electorate which is to say they no longer answer only to a narrow slice of voters who turn out in party primaries. And by the way, I'm a primary voter. You guys probably are too. I'm pro-primary voter. But what we can't have is where they are the only ones who get to decide who wins, which means they're the only ones who get to decide the kind of leadership that our elected officials can have when they're in Washington, D.C., So now we have made the general election always the election that determines the winner. And that means that those winners have broader latitude to figure out what deals we need to make to deal with the complex problems that we have and move the country forward instead of this stale gridlock on all these issues that we've had now for, you know, a decade and two.
2: I think that was an excellent summary of Final 5. And so now we want to ask some specific questions about that. And so as you know, we're a podcast primarily about Oregon politics. So has IPI looked at Oregon? We have a long independent streak in the state, you know, Governor Tom McCall, Senator Wayne Morse, we're kind of famous for having mavericks in Oregon and for having an independent electorate. Have you thought about Oregon as a potential place for investment in a ballot measure or a legislative referral of some kind?
1: Yeah, so what you're getting at, Ben, is this idea of how would we get to final five, which I don't think we've totally discussed, so I'll cover that first. Sure. So Article 1 of the Constitution gives every state the power to make these rules for how you elect people to Congress so each state can change it individually. So you're right, we at IPI, which is a national organization, do look at the set of states and think which of these states might be the next one that wants to make this change, Alex. Alaska already did it in November of 2020. We would love to see a campaign get started in Oregon. We at IPI do two things. We sometimes go find people in a state and say, hey, would, would this be a good idea for your state? And sometimes we answer the phone when people in the state figured that out on their own and they call us and then we collaborate together these efforts, these campaigns need to be really run, led in state. This is a decision that the citizens of the state you know, will make. And so, so we would answer the phone joyfully if someone from Oregon called us. Um, and I would say that I would love to see that anytime, but mostly probably in 2024, if I'll just give you a little hint on that. Um, so I think it's not likely that Oregon is going to run. I'm not seeing activity in Oregon that leads me to think they're going to run this in 2022, but I would love to see them running this in 2024.
2: Very very good. Uh, very interesting. My follow-up here, and then I know Titus has a couple, is you mentioned Alaska. Alaska, also a famously independent state, that this proposal actually did pass. I believe it's in effect now and has been in effect for an election or are we not there yet? And So that's part A, and then part B, lessons learned from Alaska and how they might apply to a state like Oregon who's thinking about it. What's the sales pitch based on what's happened there?
1: Yes, so Alaska passed, Alaska citizens passed a ballot measure to implement this new system for both their federal and state elections in November of 2020. Okay, so this will be the first in 22. Right, so they haven't actually had any elections under the system yet. But what's really interesting, if you think about it, is the incentives for everybody changed when the rules changed, even before they got elected, because it's their next election that is dictating their behavior. It's what is going to have them keep or lose their job in 22 that tells them what their options are. So, the people elect the people in Alaska who are elected under the old system have more freedom automatically the day after, you know, the November two thousand and twenty elections. And they are in the state legislature working collaboratively across the aisle in a way that they likely would not have without these uh, changes. So, and we'll also see a different, kind of Senate race in Alaska in 2022 because of this, which is to say that Senator Murkowski, a Republican from Alaska, is up for re-election, And she has been not supportive of President Trump. And so he has decided he wants to primary her, which, as we all know, that's what People do on both sides. Uh, They say we're gonna primary someone, we're gonna make them lose their primary by taking them out on the right or the left. What is different about Alaska is that that now can't happen. The two primary as a verb goes away because we're going to have in Alaska's case, four candidates in the general election. So what we're likely gonna see in Alaska is Senator Murkowski will quote, make it through the primary in the top four a Trump supported Republican challenger in the Senate race will make it through in the top four. A Democrat will likely make it through in the top four and then another candidate. And so the general electorate in Alaska will determine who wins Whereas under the old rules, it would have been the primary voters and the Republican side determining on their own in a low turnout primary who was going to win. So this will be a very interesting race to watch. And we're really pleased that what this system, in their case, Final Four voting, because they did four, not five, moving to the general election, has really re-empowered people who go to vote in November, whereas previously their votes weren't going to matter. So that's how Alaska going. What lessons have we learned? Um, we Before, like what we've seen so far. Well, and,
2: and so there's five instead of four, which I think not necessarily a lesson learned from Alaska, but you've talked about how like there's a there's it's actually more advantageous to have five instead of four. And that's why you're proposing other states go to five, correct?
1: That's correct. Uh, my first work, which I published out of Harvard Business School in 2017, proposed four. And that is what they naturally moved forward with in Alaska. And now since that time, I'd done some additional work with game theory, et cetera, to determine that really five is a more optimal level of competition without being so much competition that you start to get the diminishing returns of complexity. So mm-hmm. five is really the sweet spot. for is way better than what we have right now. I love <laughs> sure. what Alaska did. And by the way, this is an important time to say that the credit for Alaska in terms of who really made it happen, there goes to people in Alaska. First among them, Scott Kendall, mm-hmm. who is the person who actually read this work in 2017 and determined that he was going to form this ballot initiative committee. And he and then others who joined him took it all the way to the finish line. So we were fortunate to provide the intellectual piece of that and then work, you know, as a to be helpful. But mm-hmm. it's people in Alaska who did it and cheers to Scott Kendall.
2: So you didn't move to Anchorage for two years to (laughs) to make this happen.
1: (laughs) So I was about to get on a plane to Alaska for a week to talk about this system in March of, I was going the first week of March of 2020. And this was the first thing that I canceled because of COVID I was gonna have to fly through Seattle. And remember that's where the outbreak was really starting. Yeah. yeah, I was like, yeah, you know, so I never got to go to Alaska for it, but I made a lot of Zooms. I believe it. I believe it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, very good. Catherine, I have one question for you, which will then lead into my second question as well. So you've told us today, and I've heard you say it in previous interviews, too, that we need members of Congress or in the House or in the Senate. And these people, you know, they need to be elected to deliver on things would you maybe dive into that a little bit further like in your mind what like what does delivering actually look like for members of congress
1: yes it uh, that's such an important question because it is too general of a term okay if i just say to get things done in the public interest well whose vi- whose vision of the public interest are they getting things done in you know so here's here's the idea right now so we're going to compare the ideal with what we have right now. So right now, as uh, Ben said in the beginning, members of Congress are in many ways actually incented not to solve problems because it helps when you have a duopoly only two to actually keep a lot of problems alive and have them be divided so that both sides can continue to run on them, to raise money on them and to turn out their basis on those problems. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the incentives that exists right now. And that's a crazy way to set up a legislature which we need to figure out a solution. Um, so what when we talk about solving problems in the broad public interest, it is this idea of in a democracy, we have decided by forming one under a constitution That we are going to live together in a way that we're going to choose collectively through this legislative process, which means inherently, if there are different views and opinions, no one is going to get exactly what they want, Mm -hmm. that the legislature needs to figure out a way to represent all those views and opinions and find a way forward, not just by representing the views, but also by dealing with how hard the problems are to solve, which is to say that if we had easy problems in this country, even our crummy system would solve them, okay? Our problems are hard. That's partly why we're divided because there are lots of trade-offs. So you want to have a system that basically puts people in a position to do what needs doing, which is to deal with these trade-offs and to deal with the different expectations of the people they've been sent there to represent and find a common ground among them. Sometimes people don't wanna hear me say that, They they want to live in a fantasy world where, quote, their side is someday going to have an ongoing trifecta where they control the presidency and both houses of Congress for you know 15 years in a row and they're going to get to enact their agenda sort of unobstructed from the other side. But that, as we know, is not the world we live in or are going to live in. So we have to find a way to put these people in a position to live in the world we do live in where we're divided and the problems are complex and they've got to figure out a way forward. And that's what this system does, which means this system doesn't actually have a policy preference embedded in it, this election system. It is not a Trojan horse for either party's likely advantage. It is a system that Gives people an opportunity to, gives our elected officials an opportunity to do the hard work without tying their hands behind their back. And then what we do is we hold them accountable in the general election because for the first time ever, if they're not doing sort of what we, the voters, like, there will be a new competitor and we can choose someone else. So it's the threat of new competition that makes companies. Do well for their customers that's what we started with so the key here is not just that they'll have more freedom to do what needs doing but it will be that if they don't do that we'll get to vote for someone else yeah. if we're if we're a republican we'll have more than one republican choice
0: yeah yeah no that that makes sense and i want to play devil's advocate for just a minute when it comes to the primary point so I know during a previous interview, you had brought up that you had a few friends or colleagues, some of them worked for George Bush, some of them worked for Obama, and they would basically tell you, you know, when I was in the administration, I had meetings with members of Congress from the opposing party, and they said, I'd love to work with you on this, but I'm afraid of being primary. I think that that's essentially what you had said. I personally think, though, that some of the people on, and I won't speak to the left, maybe Ben can speak to that because he was more in that realm, but at least some of the most interesting people on the right, in my opinion, who are, have very unorthodox views that I would say are different from sort of conservative ink are like Josh Hawley, Donald Trump, and people like Jim Banks. Uh, And these people are very partisan on some issues, but they're also very unorthodox in others, right? I mean, you have Josh Hawley has introduced a bunch of bills with Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump put regulations on prescription drug pricing and said he wouldn't cut Social Security. Jim Banks has proposed industrial policy, which kind of goes against free market orthodoxy. And then, you know, very unorthodox, but very popular with sort of their voters in their district. And then I feel like you have kind of the Paul Ryans of the world who were very orthodox they had all the conservative talking points but like clearly some of their views were just very out of touch with the base and they were just basically unaligned and and unpopular because of that reason i'd be kind of curious of your response to that in general of that my idea is actually that the most partisan people at least on the right are actually doing the most interesting and unorthodox things when it comes to kind of working across the aisle and delivering just kind of curious of your response to that
1: here's my response the people Let's take it that we agree with you. Let's just say we agree with you that yes, these people on the right are doing the most interesting things, but are those interesting things getting done? You know, most of them are not. Okay, so the bill may be Mm -hmm. introduced, they may be saying interesting things, they may be creating interesting partnerships, but are we actually then passing a law that is getting signed that is being implemented and by the way that is also paid for? Mm-hmm. We're not doing any of those things. So what we have now is a system where you can definitely be interesting and maybe even innovative, but that's disconnected from whether it leads to anything. So I, w- we will not eliminate any of what you're talking about with final five voting. In fact, we'll get more innovation, but what we need is innovation that turns into something that gets a consensus so that it can pass and be implemented. I believe that we want, this is what I say, and you mentioned this earlier, uh, this final five voting system is not about the ideal of a squishy middle, let's split the difference on every issue and somehow that is the best we can do. No, actually we should take advantage of the divergence and diversity in the country, because innovation in any industry often arises from, quote, the fringes. Now, it's true that crazy also arises from fringes, (laughs) although everybody's different. Everybody's definition of what is crazy is different. But my point is, you can have good crazy, 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 bad crazy, you can have all of those things and have a functioning democracy if you allow for this broad diversity of opinion to have a space in the dialogue, but, and to have people be elected who might espouse those views, but then there's a way of legislating that offers those people the opportunity to do something in a consensus way and still get reelected. So, so I actually think that this system, you'll still have people coming in espousing different things, but they may still vote yes on something that isn't what they're espousing, because they can get reelected by saying, yeah, that's the best we can do right now for the country. Is this, you know, bipartisan immigration deal that we actually found a mechanism to pay for.
2: That they actually might makes- that. That actually makes a lot of sense to me in that it, in some in some ways, like the Holly bernie bipartisanship might actually be bolstered with allies if the system yeah. takes root across the country. My, I've got a couple of questions. And only
1: in the end, only if over time that's what general election voters want. I mean, look, this system only is a good idea if in the end we believe in democracy and that we believe that general election voters should over time get to choose the direction of the country. Um, But this will figure out if this system will figure out if democracy works. Right now, the challenge we have is that only 10 percent of the people in the country have any say whatsoever at all. My son is four. So I like to think about this as saying that uh, 10 percent of the country is the boss of us. (laughs) (laughs) And they really shouldn't be. They should participate fully, but they just shouldn't be the boss of everybody else.
2: That makes sense. Um, and so I'm in
1: that 10% again. And I'm making, I'm saying I should not, just because I vote in a primary, have more say than someone else.
2: Yeah, for sure. It's a fair point. So Titus asked his question from the right. I've got a couple questions from the left that I think, particularly in a state like Oregon, where we're predominantly blue in terms of who we elect, that I think will be on people's mind. The first is about money and politics and corporate power. And one of the main critiques that I actually think primarily on the left from the the Bernie Sanders movement, but also I think Donald Trump tapped into this is like, there actually has been bipartisan consensus and meeting in the middle on a bunch of really bad things like endless foreign wars and bailouts of corporations and anti-labor policies, blah, 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 where the, you know, the big money donors who are, uh, as you mentioned, like not an easy thing to fix money in politics, but One critique of the proposal might be like, well, sure, you're you're sort of reshuffling the deck a little bit, but at the end of the day, these campaigns are still going to cost tens of millions of dollars and the big donors are going to be able to cloak their bipartisanship as appealing to broad groups of people, but they're still not delivering for the American people because the incentives are all wrong in terms of finances, donations. What's your response to that? I know you've talked about why starting here makes sense in terms of pragmatism, but is there a a substantive response to this fear about corporate power and money and politics?
1: I agree with Winston Churchill when he said that democracy is the worst form of government out there, except when compared with all the others. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one. And, And so democracy is messy and it is hard. What we have right now is messy, hard, and bad results, crummy results, division, et cetera, to show for that. Yes. What we would have with final five voting where the best way to get and keep your job is, you know, to focus on these results in the public interest, we'd have messy, hard, and some good results to show for it. There is no utopia in a democracy and there will be policies under this that lots of people won't like, right? Mm-hmm. But the idea in a democracy is that over time, more people get served than not, than under another system. Everything is relative when you have to figure out what form of government you wanna live under and how you wanna you know, make collective decisions if you wanna be a democracy instead of you know, a monarchy or a autocracy. And so, so having said that, money, in politics is always going to be an issue, but it doesn't have to be totally negative, which is to say, uh, I don't particularly have a problem with money in politics as long as money isn't more important than votes. Mm. So in the current system, the problem we really have is that votes have so little power We have an exchange rate problem. It's not that money has so much, it's that votes have so little because think of it this way. What we just said is 83% of elections are decided in a party primary. So what is the power of everybody who votes in the general electorate in those, you know, 83% of elections? The power of those votes is zero, which means that money can determine, can influence what people want to do because the votes had no influence. There's no amount of money that is going to influence a politician to do sort of a self-interested corporate thing if that politician didn't get elected. So in this system, we're now making the general election, you know, sir pleasing general election voters be required to be elected and therefore that makes a lot of votes way more important than money in a way that they're not in the current system. So that's the direction that we go. And it's fine if there's money in an industry, as long as that industry's incentives are to serve the customers, right? Mm -hmm. So what we have now is an industry's incentives are not to serve the customers. And therefore, money exacerbates it. Whereas if we alter the incentives in our election system, then you can have a growing industry with more money and it can be, you know, quote, fine. The other thing I would say is we don't have a lever to pull on money in politics. And it's a huge mass of unintended consequences if you try to figure out how someone thinks it would be better. So when we go back in the beginning, why are we having success at IPI? Because what we're selling this system of final five voting works in reality it's both powerful and it's achievable and money in politics is neither of those things
2: well and that's the beauty of our laboratories of democracy state-by-state system here is we can try this and see we will have some hard data in Alaska about how it's also cool that they did it in their legislature and not just for Congress which I know is primarily the goal here because that gives you way more uh, way larger sample size about like how many bills were bipartisan? What kind of bills were bipartisan? You know, how did money and politics flow differently than other elections? So um, yeah, hopefully hopefully, it'll provide some insight for other states um, as we- You know, bipartisan.
1: I was, that's a totally good point. I was just told, I don't know the details, but I was just told that Alaska was able to avert a government shutdown through a bipartisan agreement that it is believed to be possible because people see they can do that given these elections incentives.
0: Very cool. Well, Catherine, we want to be respectful of your time. And thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I have two, which should be easy questions. One, and everyone should watch us on YouTube as well, and not just listen on their phone. But was the bookshelf set up by you or by a staffer? This is like, (laughs) if if we were on Room Raider, I would give this like a a 10 out of 10. I would say, we (laughs) we got the book in the background. You can easily see it. It looks great. So if if either a shout out to you or a staffer who may have put this together.
1: Okay, I actually did that. In the, in the pandemic when i realized that i was gonna sit here for you know i didn't know it was going to be this long but uh i was like oh i better make this room look good so thank you
0: well, uh, uh, business leader and creativity so that's uh <laughs> it's, it's very good although
1: i didn't paint that painting sometimes people ask me that and I, think, <laughs> if I could do that i would do that
0: <laughs> you could you could have lied to we would have yeah we would have believed that, okay. that. <laughs> Uh, No, but thanks so much again for for coming on. Uh, And before we let you go, uh, where can people follow your work? Uh, Where can they get your book? Where can they find you? Where can they learn more about IPI? I would love to hear all of that.
1: Thank you. So the most important uh, thing I think if people have time and are interested is to watch the TED Talk and share it. And you can just Google my name, Catherine Gale, G-E-H-L, TED Talk, or just G-E-H-L, TED Talk and you will find it. Um, And please share that with people, share it on social media. Uh, If you wanna get in touch with us, you can go directly to my website, which is political-innovation.org. And follow me on Twitter, Catherine Gale. That's good too. Uh, But TED Talk first, get in touch with me second, and follow me on Twitter third. I would love it. And it's been great to be with you guys today. And I hope that there will be uh, a movement in Oregon. If you guys want to start it, call me up for this in the future. We'd love to work with you guys.
2: Well, when they start collecting uh, signatures for the ballot measure in, uh, you know, 2022 or 2023, we'll have you back on the podcast to, to talk about what we've learned so far. But thank you again, Catherine, for being with us. It's been a really fun conversation.
1: Thank you. It's great. Have a good day.